Welcome again to our midweek time of Bible study and fellowship. And I hope uh, some singing on your part and on our part. Praise to the Lord gladdens his heart, refreshes our spirit, and announces the good news to all who hear us singing these wonderful, wonderful songs. If you will, this is again another opportunity in the middle of the week to stop at an oasis in the middle of the week, find some blessing, some help, some encouragement, and some refreshing. I asked before the service tonight, I asked, what are the needs of our people tonight? And they all need encouragement. So may the Lord grant that this is a time of great refreshing, great blessing in the very presence of the living God. Best, if you will, now, where are we tonight? This is, this, it's not a mystery, is it? Because well, it's been in the outline before, right? Well, I've studied it. I don't know if anybody else has. <laughs> okay. But I remember on the previous outline you had some things that were coming up. Right. And so tonight, tonight we want to be looking. Do Christians ever get in trouble? Every once in a while. Yes. Oh. I know I do. Do they get badly in trouble? <laughs> I have. Yes, sir. So. Thank the Lord. He's gracious to us. There is grace and truth there, there is. is grace and there's forgiveness and it's restoration and all those things that god has available for us and every church probably should experience that if they haven't they will <laughs> sure enough oh my well may the lord prepare our hearts for our bible study tonight we're looking at john's gospel wonderful wonderful testimony and may i say that the church is in the redemption business. That's Amen. what we're in business for. We're not in the condemnation business. We're in the redemption business. So that has to do with sinners that are very much in trouble morally and otherwise. That has to do also with Christians that really blow it. And I'm so glad because you know what, Pastor Pelletier? I have really blown it in my life. Me too. And it's just wonderful that God has a way to get back to us. But sometimes it's kind of painful. Sometimes yeah. it's kind of, let, let's read about this, if sure. we will. John's Gospel, uh, chapter 21. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias and manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciple came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. But when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. 
Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Wonderful to see God restoring a fallen Christian. And uh, if you've never experienced that, I hope that you don't experience the fall, but that you experience the privilege of helping someone else be restored. Before we do that, I do want to remind our men uh, to consider joining us for the men's retreat at Wolf Mountain, March 11th through 13th. That's just a couple of weeks away, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. I think we've got a few men that are going already, and it should be a good time. It always is. Lots of room to roam if you need to get out away and do some social distancing. They've got 600 acres there to do it, and uh, you might get lost, but we'll try to find you and get you back. But I hope that you men will consider joining us. I think it's $130. We'll leave on Thursday around noon and come back as soon as we can on that Saturday uh, shortly after that. But before then, men, don't forget, uh, we have our Man Up Breakfast on the last Saturday of the month. We do this every Saturday. We get those sandwiches that uh, are untouched by human hands. And, and a few men uh, also do make some other things usually. And we have a good time of fellowship, a good time of prayer. I uh, basically got a motto, we eat, we meet, we leave, and that's what we do, but we pray in between, and, uh, and I hope that you will come. I think prayer is very important, and I think it's really important for a church to have praying men. So join us there at 9 o'clock, Saturday morning, February 27th, there at the church, and uh, there won't be many of us, but, and we'll be spread out like we should be, uh, but there will be something there for us, and I hope that you will come. I'm working on getting a man to do the devotional that day, and uh, I've already asked one, and we're working to see who we can get to do that. If nothing else, you might just have to listen to me that day. We'll see how it goes. But I hope to see you there that Saturday morning. Now, we have been studying for some time now, and I'm hoping tonight we're going to have to kind of move along here uh, to finish up this study on the pattern of grace and truth, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, the study is based on chapters 9 and 10 in Dean Taylor's book, The Thriving Church. And we're trying to talk about how a church can grow. And Pastor has said it, and I agree, we, we many times have said, you, you have to grow as an individual in order for your church to grow. And we grow spiritually, we grow in depth, we grow in wisdom, we grow in a, a deeper walk with the Lord. 
And that's what we're trying to do. It begins with salvation, and then it goes with continuing to be restored when we fall and serving the Lord as we can. Now, in Dean's chapter, Dean's two chapters here, chapters 9 and 10, which I really do hope to finish tonight. We've been on it for six or seven weeks now. Um, he gives nine examples of how Jesus showed uh, grace and truth to people. Uh, a religious and moral man, a religious and immoral woman, a crowd of hungry followers, a woman caught in sin, a grieving family, a sin-centered uh, disciples we talked about, I think, last week. And then tonight we're going to try to cover those last three, a skeptical observer, a failing follower, and a dying sinner. Now, we won't do it in that order, because I've divided these nine, peop nine groups of people into two basic categories, those of those who are unsaved that Jesus met with. And he showed grace and truth to the unsaved. We call that evangelism. And then he showed grace and truth to believers. Sometimes they had fallen. Sometimes they'd been discouraged. Sometimes they were in times of grief. And Jesus brought them through what we call sanctification uh, to bring them up in their walk with the Lord. That's how they grew. And so let's take a look at these two big groups. We're going to hit them kind of fast. We'll focus on two or three of them in, uh, in a little more depth because we've studied this before, and if you haven't uh, caught this study in the past, you can go back and look at these things online at hamiltonsquare.org. So let's take a look, first of all, at this group of unsaved people that Jesus went and approached with grace and truth. He loved unsaved people, and he wanted to reach them, because he knows he is the way of salvation, the only way that they can have eternal life. And he met, first of all, we studied in John chapter 3, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the is the, is the uh, religious man, he's a, he's a moral man, he's uh, doing everything that he knows to do what is right, and yet in his heart he knows it's not enough. How do you know if you've done enough good works to earn your way into heaven? Nicodemus said, I still don't know. And Jesus said, you must be born again. And he showed him how to be born again. And based upon the later life of Nicodemus and the way he approached and protected Jesus, during a time when people were persecuting him and then showed up at his, at his death and was involved in the burial of Jesus, we know that Nicodemus came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life was changed because Jesus had approached him with grace and truth. And then we have that Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, she had been an immoral woman. She was religious, but she was immoral. She'd had five husbands, and now she's living with another man uh, in an immoral relationship, and Jesus approaches her and says, what you're doing is not satisfying your spiritual thirst. She'd come to this well and she's looking for something. She's always looking someplace, somebody to bring the peace and joy that she needed in her life. And Jesus said, I am the living water. And if you'll put your trust in me, I can give you a satisfaction for that deep spiritual thirst in your soul. And she accepted the Lord. And then she told everybody in her town, Sychar there in Samaria, about the Lord. And many of them came to know the Lord. They came to hear the Lord themselves, and they believed in Him. Then we get into John chapter 6, and there in John chapter 6, that crowd of people had been following Jesus. He'd been healing people. He'd been doing miracles. He'd turned water into wine. They wanted to see what He was going to do next. And we don't know exactly why all these people were following Jesus. They liked His teaching. They liked His personality, maybe. They liked to see, or they wondered what He was going to do next, I guess. And they followed him off into the wilderness to hear him teach. And in the end of the day, they got hungry. And there wasn't any uh, restaurants nearby. There, weren't, there wasn't any food nearby, except for a little boy's lunch. 
And Jesus took that little boy's lunch and miraculously fed five to 10,000 people that day, physically. And then the next day, they still followed him, wanting more food. And he said, you don't need food. You need to have the spiritual hunger of your heart met. And he said, I am the bread of life. And if you'll put your trust in me, I can satisfy the hunger of your soul. He satisfies the thirst of a, of a soul, and he satisfies the hunger of a soul. And we need to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we'll skip down to another one. A woman was caught in sin in John chapter 8. And here this woman had been brought before the Lord. She'd been caught in adultery. There was a group of religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, who really were after Jesus. And they used this woman as a kind of a pawn in a battle between the Old Testament law and the, and the fulfillment of the Roman government's requirements at that time. The Jewish law said that the woman, because of her sin, should be taken out and stoned, uh, according to the Old Testament law. You can read that in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But then Jesus said, uh, just, just told those men, he says, the first one among you who is uh, without sin, you cast the first stone. And, and that brought conviction to their heart. And one by one, those men left. He approached them with grace. He approached them with truth. And they all left under conviction. And then he turns to the woman and he says, you go and you sin no more. Now we know this was just a ploy trying to catch Jesus because if, if they were honest about this and really wanted Jesus to pass judgment, they'd have had to brought the man along too who was caught in this act of adultery. But because of their, their foolishness, because of their pride, uh, they found themselves in a situation where the truth that Jesus spoke and the gracious way in which he approached them brought conviction to their heart, and they left. And we have no record that those people, that group of scribes or Pharisees, or even that this adulterous woman had come to know the Lord as Savior. But he did present them with truth. Sometimes that happens. We tell people the truth of the gospel. Sometimes we love them enough, and yet they still do not come to know the Lord. I'm thinking right now of a dear woman that I witnessed to who needs to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and she has not yet turned to him. And we need to keep praying for those that we know who are in a situation like that. They know the truth, they've experienced the love of God, and yet they are not willing yet to submit to him for salvation. Well, let's skip down to another man. In Dean Taylor's book, he, he puts him down as the ninth one in this list of nine. But I think this person fits better into this second category of the unsaved people that Jesus met with grace and truth. He's the dying sinner, the thief on the cross. And we're going to spend a little time here because I want you to understand some things about this thing of salvation. In John chapter 19 and uh, verses 17 and 18, Jesus has been taken to the cross and he is getting ready to die for the sins of the world. It says there in John chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him. Horrible. And with him two other men, one on the either side and Jesus in between. This is the setting that we're in right now. Two men guilty of sin that was worthy of death according to the Roman government. One man who was totally innocent and yet took upon the sins of those two men and everybody else in the whole world for all time. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, 12, that he would be numbered with the transgressors, and there he was, among two thieves, who deserved to die for their transgressions. And Jesus, as he hung there on the cross, he'd been mocked all the way up, they'd beaten him, they'd, they'd scourged him, they put a crown of thorns upon his head, they had uh, just done horrible things to him, they'd spit upon him and taunted him, and there he hangs between two thieves on this cross. And even the two thieves who were hanging on that cross were taunting Jesus while they were dying. These men were vile, evil, wicked men. They'd been caught in sin. They weren't worthy of death. And they were totally unrepentant at the beginning. But the longer they hung there, we know that something changed. Let me read back in Matthew chapter 27 what was going on here, just to set the, set the story again. I've got it in my notes. If you have your notes, you can follow along uh, on page 5. Matthew chapter 27, verse 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also with the scribes and elders were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And they were mocking him. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. These men were unrepentant. These men were hardened sinners. These men were, were wicked, wicked men. It's really hard to imagine the innocent Son of God hanging there with all of that being hurled at him on either side and from down below. People mocking, spitting, falsely accusing him. And yet, in all of that, he showed his amazing grace to one of those thieves when there was a change of heart that took place. After observing Jesus as he hung there on the cross, one of those thieves had a change of heart. He looked over at Jesus and he saw the love in his eyes and he saw the innocence in his heart. He knew something was different about Jesus. He wasn't yelling and screaming and cursing and crying out. He was simply accepting the sins of the world and dying in our place, performing what he had come to do. In Luke chapter 23, verse 39, we see one of the criminals who were hanged there was, uh, was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you, this cry, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other, I don't know if it was the one on the right hand or the one on the left. But the, both of these men were unnamed. I don't know who they were. But the other thief answered and rebuking the first thief said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, has done nothing wrong. Something had happened in the heart of this second thief. He was repenting of his sins. He was recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. He knew that Jesus was dying in his place for him. 
He accepted guilt for his sin. That's an important step in coming to salvation. If you have never come to grips with the fact that you're a sinner, you'll never be saved. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we have to be able to turn from our sins and to the Savior if we're ever to be saved. The repentant thief knew that he was dying and that he would soon have to face God and give an account for the awful life that he had lived. And he wanted to make sure that he was ready. He didn't want to wait until it was too late to do something about it. He was dying. This was no time for games. This was no time for foolishness. This was no time for fakery or religion. This was time to build a relationship with the one who could save his soul. Dear friend, you have no guarantee. I don't care where you're sitting right now. I don't care what you're doing right now. You have no guarantee that you're going to see tomorrow. This thief on the cross knew he was going to pass away. And he knew that he needed to make things right. You have no guarantee about tomorrow. Are you sure you're ready if the Lord were to take you home in your sleep tonight? It's important that you know this. Because after this, you have no opportunity to make amends with God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. That's when you stand before God and give an account for what you have done with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to condemn sinners. Pastor said the church is not in the condemnation business. We are in the redemption business. We want to tell you that Jesus didn't, die, didn't come to condemn sinners. He came to save sinners. Even the thief on the cross and even you where you're sitting today. In a previous lesson we read the clear truth which Jesus gave presenting how to be born again. He talked to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 16. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Everyone and anyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior has been able to find the way, the truth, and the life that leads to heaven and in the presence of God. In John chapter 5, verse 24, it said, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. It's a matter of the heart. Have you come to that place in your heart where you have believed who Jesus is and what he's done for you? Have you repented in your heart for the sins that you have committed? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as the Savior? John chapter 3 Verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to them gave, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And then Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. 
For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Verse 13 says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This thief on the cross is a wonderful example of that taking place. He didn't have an opportunity to join a church. He didn't have an opportunity to turn over a new leaf. He's hanging on a cross. He can't do anything. He can't get baptized. Uh, he can't. He can't do anything. He can. He he can't uh, do anything to earn his salvation. He's nailed to a cross, and he died shortly after he met Jesus, and trusted him for salvation. It was a matter of his heart. He believed in his heart. And then he turns to the Lord in Luke chapter 23, verses 42 and 43, and those same lips that previously had been cursing Jesus and taunting Jesus, now turns to Jesus in repentance and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's faith in his heart. And Jesus knew what was going on in his heart. For Jesus knows our hearts. We can say all the hocus-pocus magic words and that does nothing, but until we believe in our heart, we cannot be saved. Now, Jesus said to this man, who simply said, Remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, to, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. What a wonderful story of grace and truth. This man was totally undeserving. And yet Jesus reached out to him from the cross as he was dying on the cross to another person dying on a cross beside him. And that man was gloriously saved. He didn't pray a long prayer. It wasn't flowery. It wasn't the words he said. It was something that took place in his heart. Romans chapter 10 and verse 10 says, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, once we trust Jesus Christ for salvation like that, it's not we don't stay saved because of our good works or anything else. We say stay, we stay saved because Jesus said, I will keep you. In John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said earlier, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Apparently, this thief on the cross was one of those sheep. And Jesus said in verse 28 of John chapter 10, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. What a wonderful promise we have as believers. We're not saved because we're good and righteous and do all the right things. We're saved because Jesus in his grace and mercy, provided it for us and offered it to us as a free gift that we just have to accept. The thief on the cross had nothing to fear when he died that day. He had made peace with God by trusting Jesus as his own personal Savior. He was promised paradise in the presence of God through faith in the gospel of grace and truth provided by Jesus Christ for him that day. And we all need to hear the message of grace and truth in order to be saved, but even after we've made our peace with God for salvation, we need to continue to trust God in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ to make it through the trials and temptations of this present life. So we're saved, once saved, always saved. But then we're, as a believer, we're going to go through some struggles and some difficulties, and we still need to have that faith. Not for salvation, 
but faith to continue to trust the Lord to live and please Him. Jesus met a whole lot of unsaved people. We've talked about them in grace and truth. And now we're going to look at the second group of people, those who were saved, who were those were saved people that Jesus met with grace and truth. Now you're going to have to follow along very quickly. We got a lot to cover yet. So Jesus started off here. We're going to we'll look at this this list of saved people in John chapter 11. We know that Jesus went in grace to Mary and Martha, the grieving family. Their brother Lazarus had passed away. And they were in sorrow, and they were in grief. They missed their brother. And Jesus came to them in grace. He was with them in his presence. He was with them in his tears. He was with them in his concern. But he also spoke truth to them. Your brother will live again. And then in Jesus' power, because he is God, he was able to not only give them that promise that one day they would see their brother again, that day Jesus proved that he was God by bringing Lazarus from the grave. What a wonderful thing. I wish we could do that. I wish I could do that for a dear brother who's lost his wife recently. I wish I could do that. But she's in a better place. But now, Jesus brought Lazarus back for a purpose. He died later on, but he brought back Lazarus for a purpose to bring comfort. He did that in grace and truth to accomplish his will on that day. And then we go in John chapter 13 where Jesus offered uh, grace and truth to his own disciples. And we talked about this last week. They had been arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, even as Jesus was just telling them, in a few days, I'm going to the cross, and they're going to crucify me, and I'm going to die, and they're going to bury me, and then I'm going to rise again. And they're asking all these crazy things about wanting to be leaders in his kingdom. And uh, they, they were not really paying attention to him, and all they were thinking about was themselves. They were very self-centered. And Jesus taught them that day the responsibility that they have to serve one another and to lead by serving. In grace, Jesus got up from the supper in John chapter 13, verse 4 and 5, and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Twenty-four grubby, dirty feet of men. I can't imagine. But he wiped them with a towel with which he was girded. Dean Taylor says the greatest man who ever lived performed the work of a lowly slave. He did it for inconsiderate, ambitious men who would repay him by abandoning, denying, and betraying him. Even Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him to the cross. But Jesus spoke to them after he did this. and He did that in a, grace, in a gracious way, a loving way, a concerned way for them. He served them. But then he told them in John chapter 13, verses 12 through 17, said, just as I have done this for you, you should be serving others. And that is a lesson that Jesus taught in grace and truth. Washing the disciples' feet, teaching them the need for humility in order to be used of him. They were saved because they had trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, but they still had a sin nature and they needed to be cleaned up once in a while. That's what confession's about. In the great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, by Robert Robinson, was written, it was written in 1758. We know that our hearts are in need of God's grace to keep us from sinning and to bring us back to Him from time to time. The song says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, I know that others feel the same way. But we can be glad that in the grace of God, even when we become arrogant and sinful as believers, Jesus reaches out to us and brings us back to him 
in grace. The last two examples that we want to look at very quickly are two of the disciples, Jesus' favorite people, those 12 that followed him for three years during that active time in his ministry here on earth. Two of Jesus' disciples in particular needed attention after his resurrection. He had gone to the cross, he had risen from the grave, and now he's returning to speak with them. Pastor read about the third time that, the, that Jesus had met with the disciples there on the Sea of Galilee as he told them where to catch the fish. But the first time, uh, there was a skeptical observer named Thomas Didymus. He was a twin, or Thomas, we call him the doubter. He was a skeptic, and he, and he was, just didn't happen to be there on the first time Jesus appeared to the disciples. And Jesus suddenly shows up in this upper room, and ten of the disciples there, Judas has already hanged himself, Thomas says, I don't know where, and the other ten are there. And then Jesus shows up in their midst. And uh, Thomas had seen miracles, but he had a hard time believing that other disciples, when they told him, we've seen the Lord. Jesus had told him he was going to come back. Jesus had told him he was going to rise from the dead. Thomas had seen Jesus raise the, the, the son of the widow of Nain in John, Luke chapter 7. And he had seen the witness the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11. But he had a hard time believing when the disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. I don't know if he doubted the disciples. I don't know if he doubted the Lord. All we know is that he had doubts. In John chapter 20, verse 24 and 25, uh, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands with the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. That's a matter of choice. Many people have been presented with the gospel. Many Christians have, have accepted the Lord, but they have a hard time trusting God in faith with their lives. We don't know of what Thomas doubted about, but we know that he did. He chose not to believe until he had proof. I run into people like this all the time. I get phone calls. I get emails. I get text messages from people who say, I heard you say something from the Bible that I don't believe it. And then we have to give them proof about creation. We have to give them proof about how the Bible is true. We have to give them all sorts of proof. And sometimes it's easy for us to get weary with people like that. Jesus took the time to meet Thomas in his doubts and to prove to him who he was. In John chapter 20, verse 26, eight days after Jesus had already met with the other disciples, Eight days Thomas doubted. Eight days later, Jesus shows up again in the same room, and this time Thomas is with them. In John chapter 20, verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, specifically the doubter, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus could have left Thomas in all of his doubts. But Jesus, in grace, went back to the doubter. 
and said, I'm going to tell you the truth and prove myself to you. Jesus was full of grace and truth. In patience and love and concern and grace, he went specifically to meet with Thomas. Dean Taylor says it's an act of grace to move toward people who doubt God. God himself moved toward all of us who know him by loving us when we were sinners, sending his son to give his life in our place, and through the Holy Spirit's convicting activity that leads us to accept and believe the truth about Jesus. Jesus spent the days of his public ministry engaging with people who were skeptical of his teaching and of his identity as the Messiah. He gave us an example to follow when we interact with people who question the claims of the Bible. When you witness to people and when you talk to Christians who doubt the scriptures, don't let them intimidate you. Study your Bible. Read your Bible. Know what it says. Go to church. Listen to the sermons. Listen to the explanations. Read good books. Study. Do the best that you can. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as the Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence, we're not to argue with people, but we are to answer their questions. Study God's word for answers. Second Second Timothy chapter two verse fifteen, the Apostle Paul wrote to that young preacher: Be diligent to present yourself unto, present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not to be, need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. In Titus chapter three. Peter or Paul wrote to Titus, another young preacher, and said, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. We need not fear people who question the scriptures. But when we provide answers from the scriptures, and people continue to argue with us, then it's time to maybe walk away and let them consider things in their own minds. Ultimately, Dean Taylor says this, it's a good good quote, ultimately being a Christian is a life of faith. But evidence and logic can be used to explain the basis of our faith, just as Jesus showed his wounds to Thomas as evidence that he was the risen Christ. We can present evidence for the inspiration of the Bible, creation, the words and works of Jesus, and his resurrection from the dead. But we don't want to argue with people who do not accept the evidence. Jesus didn't hide the truth from Thomas. He shared it to him very patiently, graciously, personally. He wanted him to know. God's not trying to hide truth from anyone, the doubters or anyone else. He wants them to know. He said to, John, to Thomas in John 20, verse 27, Reach here with your finger, see my hands, reach here your hand and put it into my side. And then he gave them a command. He said, Do not be unbelieving. But believing. Stop doubting. Start trusting. Believe God's word. Thankfully, Thomas repented and returned to the Lord by faith. And even as he was encouraged, Thomas, Jesus was also encouraging us. He said in John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, there's repentance in Thomas's heart. But Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? 
He said, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. We didn't, haven't personally stuck our hands into the wounds of Jesus or the wounds of his side. We haven't seen these things with our own eyes. But we have the evidence in the scriptures. And we have the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. Sadly, even the best of us have doubts from time to time. That's when we need to be in the scriptures. That's when we need to be around uh, God's people. That's when we need to be around others who will encourage us in God's word. Times of trial test our faith. We've been through a long time of trial here with this coronavirus. And we haven't been in church like we should be and normally are. And hopefully that will go away soon. I hope that you're paying attention to these live streams. It's the best we can do right now. But you stay in the word yourself. Be reading the scriptures and gain your faith and trust. By reading it, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We should rejoice that grace and truth is realized through Jesus Christ. He doesn't give up on his children. He didn't give up on Thomas, and he's not going to give up on the doubters in your life as well. As long as, there's a, as we are alive, there is hope. As long as those doubters are alive, there is hope. And let's keep working with them the best that we can. And then we're going to look at this final one that Jesus approached with grace and truth. Pastor read about it tonight, and I know you've been waiting. When are we, when's he going to get to John 21? Well, finally, we're getting there in the last few minutes here we have tonight. And we are not going to go into great depth. But I want you to see some things about how Jesus dealt with Peter in grace and truth. He was a failing follower who betrayed Jesus. And yet Jesus went to him in love and restored him to a place of ministry. Just before Jesus went to the cross, he warned those disciples that this trial was coming. He said, they're going to uh, beat me up, and they're going to put me in jail, and they're going to hang me on a cross, and they're going to kill me. And Peter, in all of his boisterousness and braggadocia, uh, says in verse 33, Even though all may fail away, fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Matthew 26, verse 33. In verse 34, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. But we all know what happened. And that rooster crowed, and Peter went out and wept. Matthew 26, 74 and 75, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. He was crushed. He was trying to serve the Lord in his own strength, and he failed. He needed the grace and truth of Jesus Christ in order to be able to serve him effectively. Even after Peter saw the empty tomb, he went there. He raced. Remember, he raced John there. I always like that story because John, who never names himself, says the younger one beat the older one there. And he brags about the foot race and how he beat Peter to the, to the tomb that day. And, uh, but Peter did see the empty tomb. He, he knew something was up. And then he had been in that upper room there. Uh, and, and in the first time when even Thomas wasn't there, and he'd seen the risen Lord. And then he'd seen the risen Lord again uh, as when Thomas was there. But something had happened in the heart of Peter, and he lost his drive, he lost his zeal, he lost his confidence. He wasn't sure if he could serve the Lord again. And sometimes when we as believers fall, and we fail the Lord, and we do, and we 
do things we shouldn't do, and we sin, and we we know that it hurts and grieves the Lord. It grieves our own hearts. It grieves other people that that we affect by the lives that we've lived. And sometimes we think that's it. I'll never be able to serve the Lord again. I remember a time in that in my, like that in my own life. Will I ever be able to do what I did for the Lord before? Peter lost his drive, and in John chapter twenty-one, verse three, he said to the other disciples, "I'm going to go fishing." And the other disciples joined him, and they went out in their own strength. And once again, what happened? They caught nothing. <laughs> what does Jesus do? He looks across from the seashore, and he sees those men out there toiling all night. They haven't caught anything. And in the morning, he looks at them, and he says, Throw your nets on the other side. And they did. And they caught 153 fish. So many they couldn't get him in the boat. Peter jumped out of the boat when he figured out it was the Lord. I wondered if he was trying to drown himself in shame. I don't know. I, I really laughed out loud today when I was reading this. But Jesus encouraged Peter by blessing him when he obeyed. He threw the fish, threw the net on the other side at Jesus' command. That wasn't the normal way they fished. That wasn't the way a professional did it. And yet because he obeyed the Lord, God gave him 153 fish. Amazing. And the nets didn't break. That's even more amazing. And then Jesus encouraged him by inviting him to breakfast. You know, sometimes when somebody's hurting and grieving, the best thing we can do is just spend some time with them and talk to them and show the love of Christ to them. Jesus did that for Peter. He said, come and dine. Come have breakfast. He assured Peter of his unconditional love and his desire to have fellowship with him. And then while he was talking to him, Jesus encourages Peter by asking him some questions to find out what's going on in his heart. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And every time Peter's response is, yes, Lord, you know. Yes, Lord, you know. There's talk about all the different words for love that goes on in those passages. But ultimately, Jesus is trying to find out, is Peter really repentant? Is he ready? Is he humbled? Is he ready to serve me? And then Jesus encourages him by restoring him to a place of service. He says, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. And he put Peter back into ministry. Dean Taylor says, Jesus showed grace by giving Peter the opportunity to start over to declare his love and renew his loyalty to Jesus. But Jesus also spoke truth to Peter. He put responsibility in front of him, telling him, get to work. He was saying to Peter, you're restored, and I've got something for you to do. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9 says, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and then he can use us again if we're willing. What is our responsibility to another believer who falls into sin? Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, grace. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. You know, one of the marks of a healthy church is the way we work to restore fallen brethren. Christians sin. 
It's just a fact. We still have the old nature and we give into it from time to time. More than we should. More than we know we should. It's easy to see it in somebody else. And we can stand and we can look at them and we can judge them and we can knock them down and we can kick them while they're down. Or we can reach down and try to help them come back to a right relationship with the Lord. We need to treat people like Jesus treated Peter with grace and truth. You know, one of the greatest benefits of being part of a local church is that thing of accountability and love. Where we look out for one another. We know each other well enough that when somebody's messing up, we can lovingly say to them, what are you thinking? What are you doing? What's going on in your heart? Do you love the Lord? Do you love the Lord? Do you love the Lord? If so, repent and come back and get it busy in the business of feeding the sheep and, and reaching the lost for the God, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our job as believers is, as Pastor said at the beginning of the session, to restore and to bring others back to right relationships with Jesus Christ, whether they're unsaved or whether they're saved and have fallen. Let's do everything that we can to approach the people around us who are in such need of the grace and truth that is found in Jesus Christ. Let's strive to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13 says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. John chapter 1 verse 14, we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Do you know him as your Savior? Are you serving him as a saint? May God help us to do that. Trust Him as your Savior if you have not. Repent of any sins you know in your heart as a believer. And let's get busy in the work of God. We have work to do for Him. Amen. Father, we thank You for the grace and truth that is found in Jesus Christ. It is abundant. It is generous. It is available to all. And I pray, Lord, that You will take these words and others that have been spoken to unbelievers who have not yet received Jesus Christ. Help them to see their need. Help them to turn to Him for salvation. And if there's a fallen brother or sister here who's been watching tonight, they're discouraged, they're defeated, they're wondering, can God ever use me again? Help them to confess their sins to you and to trust you for restoration. And please, God, send another Christian along to help them on their way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.